Well, if you would, uh, take out your Bible again, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 7. And we'll be reading uh, the entire chapter, chapter 7, verses 1, uh, and then to chapter 8, verse 1. So, Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, through 8, verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kinds, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which were the breath of life. And those that entered, entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed upon the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But... God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. 
grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray now, God, that you would give us ears to hear as the word is preached. Be with this, your servant. Help your servant to explain, to apply this text. And may we give glory to you in it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as all of you know, life is full of difficulty and heartache. Sometimes, as we experience the the miseries of this life, we may think that God has forgotten us. But can this actually be? Can God forget us? The psalmist in Psalm 44 wondered this when he posed this question. He says, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalmist captures the human experience, suffering and wondering, has God forgotten me? Certainly it would be understandable if Noah had twinges of doubt in the course of the flood. For even those walking by faith may have moments of doubt, may have seasons even of doubt. Remember, Noah had obediently constructed the ark as he had been instructed. He led his family and the animals into the ark. He had experienced 40 straight days of rain. He experienced the springs of water coming up from the earth. And he experienced, at least at the point in our text here, 150 days of which the waters were triumphing over the earth. And after all that time, perhaps he might wonder, had God forgotten? He may have wondered if he was abandoned to the sea forever. The world had been destroyed. Has he been forsaken? In the middle of great turmoil, even the Christian may ask questions such as this. Many of you understand exactly what I'm speaking about. Perhaps even now you're in the middle of great turmoil and trial, and you're wondering, has God forgotten me? Take heart, beloved congregation, for God provides his people encouragement and assurances. And I think this is one of the things we see in this text here today. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. For he has promised to save his people and in Christ Jesus and by his being raised from the dead, you and I can rest assured that by faith we have eternal life. The Apostle Paul, who was himself very well acquainted with troubles and trials, we can name many of the things he went through being stoned and thrown out of many places, left for dead, He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We read this for our New Testament reading. In verse 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. 
the afflictions and trials of this present life are preparing the Christian for the eternal weight of glory. Now, these are things which are happening, which you and I cannot perceive with our senses, but we are nevertheless called to rest in Christ, to walk by faith. So here's the encouraging thing. Even in the midst of the most trying event of his life, and remember, at this point, Noah was 600 years old. In the midst of this great trouble, seemingly lost at sea, we read the words of of Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. So glorious. God did not forget Noah. God kept his promise to him. Noah was to be rescued through death to life. And so as we look again at our study in Genesis, we need to Remind ourselves, again, how we got to this point in the narrative. narrative. The narrator of Genesis, that is, of course, Moses, tells us that God had determined to destroy his creation, and he was going to do this because of the wickedness of men. It says that violence had filled the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Now, to help, again, orient ourselves to the text before us, uh, we should understand the flood account, which actually begins in uh, chapter 6, verse 9, and then will last all the way to chapter 9, has a chiastic structure. Now, in your um, bulletins, I, I provided for you an example of what a chiasm is, and I also tried to make the outline so you'd understand that we're actually only dealing with a part of the chiasm, but I want you to see the structure at least a little bit. Uh, a chiasm is an outline which has corresponding, a corresponding pattern of themes, which then is centered around one main theme. Now, you may have already guessed the main theme is, is chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. That's actually in the middle of the whole account of the flood. Which means this is the most this is like important. This is an important concept. And so the first uh, in, a, in a chiasm, the, the first theme is going to be revisited again last, and then the second theme will be second to last, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's how a chiasm structure works. So this flood account is, is a chiasm. The focal point is the center, and that is God remembered Noah. Again, God made a covenant with Noah. He had promised to save him and his family and all the beasts that were with him in the, in the ark, which Noah had been instructed to build. So this vessel was their means of salvation, but the author and finisher of that salvation was God himself. And so Noah was to spend a little over a year in the ark. And at the halfway point, the reader is reminded that God had not forgotten about Noah. He would surely make it through. God is true to his promises. And so we begin in verse 1 of chapter 7. We see that after the completion of the ark, God then instructs Noah and his family to enter it. It says, Go into the ark, you and all your family, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So again, viewing the chiastic structure, you'll note that this exhortation is matched by the post-flood command where he's told in 
uh, chapter 8, verse 16, to come out of the ark. So that, that's part of the structure. You also note that the saving of Noah and his family is attributed to Noah's righteousness. But even for Noah, even Noah had an alien righteousness. That is to say, a righteousness which was not his own. Noah was walking by faith, looking forward to the ultimate salvation, which is in Christ. And so in a near fulfillment sense, what we're talking about here is they're being saved through the flood. Ultimate salvation, of course, is not inherited. We're not saved or lost on account of our parents' righteousness. Ezekiel 18.20 makes this clear. The soul, of, uh, the soul whose sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of his father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And so we see Noah walked with God. Noah was distinguished from all his contemporaries who were wicked. Noah walked in righteousness. The world was walking in wickedness. So Noah is unique in his generation. And God sees his faith. He sees that he is walking in righteousness. Now, understand too that Noah's righteousness is not a work which somehow gained him merit with God. No, Noah's work was a result of his faith in the Lord. He built the ark. He provisioned the ark as a demonstration of his faith in God. God said, this is what you need to do. He obeyed because he believed God. And so Noah was instructed as well to bring a pair of every animal. And from among the clean animals, he was to bring seven pairs. Now, at this point... It, has, it had not been recorded in the scriptures what constituted clean or unclean. That will, of course, come later in the history of Israel when the, when the law is given. But at this point, that, that hasn't been defined. However, it seems that Noah was aware of these categories. Now, the distinction between clean and unclean animals in the Mosaic uh, sacrificial economy uh, was generally given in respect to a person's dietary habits. Lamb was okay to eat, but you can't eat bacon. I'm glad to be in the New Covenant. <laughs> but here, clean and unclean probably had more to do with the appropriateness of it for sacrifice. In other words, this, this is an animal which would be used for sacrifice because the eating of meat had not yet been given. That's going to be given, of course, after the flood. And so the number, the greater number of the clean animals was so that Noah could offer sacrifices to the Lord after the flood subsided, which is what he ends up doing. Also, you should note the significance of the number seven. The seven pairs in verses two and three indicate a whole or a complete complement, representing the whole created order. In Hebrew, seven was the number of completion. The foremost purpose of three of these pairs was to preserve their kind because after the flood, God was going to use these animals to repopulate the earth. And so there were to be seven pairs of clean animals, seven pairs of birds, the heavens, because, verse 4, in seven days, the rains will come. Noah was to begin loading the ark because the coming deluge was imminent. 
He had seven days to get the animals onto the ark, and then it was to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now note, again, the numbers, seven, 40, and 150. These are actually found in several intervals throughout the narrative. In fact, these numbers form somewhat the structure of the chiasm. You can sort of find the chiasm by finding the 7, the 40, and the 150. Then it works backwards. 7, 40, 150, 150, 40, 7. That'll help you orient yourself to the text uh, later. Uh, but stay, stay with me here for now, if you could. <laughs> um, so the, the, uh, these numbers are significant, though, not only because they form the outline of the text, because seven is an essential figure in the Hebrew calendar. Of course, you have six days of labor and one day of rest, so the seven-day week. It's also the number of completion. Forty is, a number, is an important number marking the significant events in, in Israel's life. Consider that both Isaac and Esau were 40 years old when they married. Uh, Moses remained on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights receiving the law, witnessing the glory of the Lord. Moses' life, too, was separated into periods of 40 years, as Stephen rehearses the redemptive history in Acts. The spies were in the land for 40 days, and their disobedience led to 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Perhaps 40 days and 40 nights of rain serves the same purpose as the 40 years of wandering because of rebellion. Remember, the first generation receiving this was that generation wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years. So just something to keep in mind. And so as God is going to bring the flood, again, Noah is commended for his obedience. Look at verse 5. It says, And Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. It's been an ongoing theme. where It's brought up again and again how Noah is doing the things that God has instructed him to do. Noah followed God's explicit commands. Now, the conclusion of Noah's doing all that he was commanded, this is not simply arbitrary. It's not just mentioned sort of off, off the cuff. Each time it's mentioned, it's, it's essential to the story. It's marking out Noah completing the important tasks and preparation for the flood which God was bringing. And, again, thinking about the original audience, the obedience of Noah was serving as a lesson for Israel, whose success later was dependent on their being obedient to the Lord in doing all that they had been commanded to do. They would be obeyed God, they'd remain in the land. If they disobeyed God, they would be removed from the land. Of course, we know the rest of the story, don't we? Israel's obedience was a mixed bag. Ultimately, they were conquered by the Babylonians and sent into captivity for 70 years. Obedience is important. Jesus said this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Those walking by faith delight in doing the commands of God. And so what we have here is Noah following God's instructions, delighting in the Lord. Now, the start and the duration of the flood, we note in verse 6, is measured by Noah's age. He was 600 years old when the flood began. He was 601 when it finished. 
the total time in, ends up being about one year and 11 days. That's how long he's on the ark. Noah and his family enter the ark along with the various animals on the day that the flood began. So he enters the ark. He may have been loading it for seven days, but his family actually enters the ark on the day the floods begin. Again, we see Noah's compliance with the commands of the Lord. We read in verse 10 that after seven days, the waters of the flood came. Now, we might wonder, why the seven-day delay? God said, water's going to come. Why the delay? Well, uh, the uh, Jewish Midrash uh, says that the seven-day delay was a period of mourning for Methuselah. Remember, Methuselah died in the same year as the flood began. And so they said, th- their idea was that uh, because he died just prior to the flood, this was a time of mourning. And, and Methuselah's name, some commentators suggest, means when he dies, then it will come. Although that's not certain. That's a, but that, that is some, some people think that that's what Methuselah's name means. It also could be that this was a period of mourning for God over the earth. He was about to destroy his creation. And perhaps this is simply the allotted time to load up the ark. Whatever the reason for the seven-day pause, the text doesn't tell us. But verse 10 tells us in that the flood came at precisely the time that God had warned it would come. On that day. It was very precise when God was starting or beginning his flood. And so with the preparations complete, Noah and his family would be rescued from destruction Again, as they're walking by faith. And so this was to begin in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day. That's the day that the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were open. Now, notice the great precision of the timing. This is very precise. Now, this is, this is actually unique in Genesis. This is the kind of precision in ancient writing which was usually reserved for the life of kings, not for events such as this. Yes, this is, this is very precise. The exactness of the time frame invests the story with importance. And really what it does is add to its historic credibility. What we are dealing with here is real history. This is a real story which happened in real time and in real space. This is not simply an epic uh, epic myth uh, like many of the ancient Near Eastern stories would have. This is is historic, and the precision helps us see uh, that fact. So what happens as the flood begins is that the waters sprung forth from under the earth, and they fell down from the sky. Now, the narrator employs a poetic expression for the unrestrained release of water. The fountains of the deep burst open. This, of course, describes subterranean springs which burst to the surface. Now, we can understand this in the Ozarks, right? We've seen springs. We've seen this on a small scale, at least. We understand the concept. The water was coming rushing forth from out of the ground. But this, this is uh, not the only place water came from. Water didn't only come from the ground. It says that the windows of heaven were open, which of course is a poetic say, way of saying it rained a lot. 
In fact, it, it was a great torrent which continued for 40 days and 40 nights. Imagine that tide of a rainstorm. But understand, this is not just a memorable storm. You all have memories of that. Remember that one storm? This is not like that. Okay? This, is, this is beyond that. This is, this is an unparalleled event in human history brought about by the very hand of God. The 40 days describes the period of time in which the rains fell constantly. And the 150 days describes the period that the waters had prevailed or overcome the earth. The earth was defeated by the water. And again, the text stresses the timing. It was on that very day that the flood began. The day which Noah and his family entered into the ark. And as they did, look at verse 16. It says, the Lord shut him in. Now this concluding remark, just prior to the water, uh, flood waters beginning, illustrates God's care for Noah. You see, Noah's not saving himself. It's not like, uh, say, the Babylonian story where you have the, you know, the great hero who, who closes the door to his ship and he's going he's gonna to defeat the one. No. no, God closes the door. God is the one who seals Noah in and protects him. Noah's not saving himself. It is the Lord who initiates his protective care. It is the Lord who shuts the door. It is the Lord who seals and preserves his servant. And so with Noah and his family and all of the animals with them safely shut into the refuge of the ark, the flood then commences. The waters rise up, the ground, uh, out of the ground, the rains fall from the sky. The flood continues to increase for 40 days. In fact, the water rose to a point the ark began to float. Then the water prevailed on the earth such that the, even the highest mountains were covered 15 cubits under the surface of the waters, which is approximately 22 and a half feet deep. That would be the shallowest place. It would be the, the tops of the mountains. This is how deep the water was. And the point of this information is twofold. First of all, it shows that the waters of the flood were deep enough that the ark would not run aground. Would float over the entirety of, of the earth. Second, it shows the flood was bringing about total destruction. The, the, the waters had completely overcome the whole, whole earth. This wasn't just a sort of a local flood, you know, it wasn't just sort of a shallow thing. This, the, the whole of the earth was defeated by the water, it was total destruction. And just as God had created out of water, we saw that in Genesis chapter 1, so God used water to destroy his earth as well. And so, so complete was the destruction. In verse 21, it says, all flesh died and moved on the earth. Human beings, animals, birds, various other creatures that crawl, Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Everything was blotted out. All that lived on dry land perished. We're reminded again of the wages of sin, which is death. 
Remember, the reason for the flood was because of the wickedness of man. The total depravity of the earth. The wickedness of man had earned destruction. And all the other creatures died as well. Water which should bring life. Water which should bring health. Here is used as an instrument to bring destruction, death, and judgment. God was using the waters of the flood to cleanse and preserve his creation with a mind towards his elect remnant who would then repopulate the earth. So we see it says that Noah only was left. And of course those who were with him in the ark as well. Only Noah, only Noah being left points us to the righteous remnant. God's elect. The elect from the former pre-flood world, the the remnant who then remain. Theologically, this depicts the idea of a future hope of God's people who are holy and regathered people. Noah was a holy, and the people with him, these were the holy people who would then regathered and repopulate the earth. In Christ, God has gone into the world and plucked us out of the pit. God has taken, in Christ, has taken us out of the world and gathered us into, to be his people, his beloved children. So Noah, being saved through the flood by the ark, is like believers being saved in Christ by his blood. Verse 24 ends then with the duration of the flood at this point. And the waters prevailed in the earth 150 days. That was the period of time that the whole world was overcome. The mountains submerged. Every living creature perished. This was the state of the earth. It was covered with water. Think about this. For five months. Imagine how long that is. Five months the whole world is overcome with water. Now this is the halfway point of the flood. Really. For this amount of time corresponds with the next 150 days in which the floodwaters then begin to be reversed. The fountains of the deep are closed. The windows of heaven are shut and the water begins to recede. And it's here at the climax of the flood, at the midpoint of our chiasm in the literary structure. At this point, we read in chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. Consider, consider how bad things are at this point. Noah is all that's left in his family. They're floating around for five months. The whole world has been overcome. If you're Noah, are you wondering, am I really going to get out of this alive? Reminded again, God remembered Noah. God remembers, actually explains the reversal as the narrator points, uh, he's painting a darker and darker picture of the utter destruction of the earth. The narrative relaxes as the waters begin to retreat. Remembering, by the way, in Hebrew is not the same as it is in English. In English, of course, remembering is to have a mental recall of something forgotten. In Hebrew, and especially in reference to God, the term has to do with acting upon a previous commitment. Remember that God had entered into covenant with Adam and then with Noah. 
God is acting upon his previous commitment, his covenant commitment to Noah. He would save him through the flood. And God was showing himself to be trustworthy. The Lord promised that the flood waters would cease, that they would recede. A global flood was not to be the permanent fixture on the earth. Dry land would return and Noah and his family and all the creatures in the ark would repopulate the earth. So God is keeping his promise. If God can be trusted to save Noah, to remember him and his covenant promises, how much more is this true in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins? Hebrews 10, 12, and 14 says that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and that by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God can remember Noah in the midst of the flood. How much more is he remembering you who are in Christ? 1 Peter 3 this is a very difficult passage, but 1 Peter 3 says that there's a correspondence between baptism and Noah being brought safely through the waters of the flood. It says it's not the removal of dirt, like washing, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Noah was baptized in a sense, certainly in the rains falling upon him, but more to the point, the world being cleansed of sin as wickedness is destroyed But Noah was shown to have true saving faith as he was rescued through the flood in the ark. His conscience could be clear that God truly was in covenant relationship with him. God truly can be trusted. And the Christian can can rest assured too. Those who are in Christ can trust and rest in him. That he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will graciously and truly save us by faith. The bodily resurrection of our Savior validates the surety of this fact. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus offered himself once so that all those who trust and rest in him can have eternal life. God remembered Noah, and God remembers his covenant people now, here, as well. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The people of the covenant then are to walk by faith, trusting in the faithfulness of the Lord, which is to say that you and I are, to, to, are expected to exercise covenant allegiance by remembering the Lord, for he has remembered us. In fact, we are enabled by his Holy Spirit to do that very thing. He first remembered us, And God does not forget his people. He does not forget you either. And so as you face the trials and tribulations of this life, in those moments when you wonder, like the psalmist, has God forgotten me? Remember that God does not forget his people. God is faithful to his covenant promises to you as members of his covenant. He knows his sheep by name, and they know his voice and follow him. Be encouraged, beloved congregation. Be encouraged. Jesus Christ is with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the wonderful reminder that you remembered Noah and that in, in, in this we are reminded also of your covenant faithfulness, that you remember your people. We thank you that you have entered into covenant with us through Jesus Christ and that his sacrifice paid the penalty for our sin. We pray that we may be those who are found to be faithful to you, that we would walk by your Spirit and help us when we fail, for we do, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet we thank you by your Spirit to help us as we are sanctified, as we continue to put to death sin and seek to live in obedience to your word. We thank you that you remember us. Help us, O God, to remember you. That your name would be glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.